1: An audit finds no Chinese spy chips on Supermicro motherboards. Huawei CFO Meng's hearing continues. An oil services firm's servers have been attacked. Seedworm shows some new tricks. Secure instant messaging apps may be less secure than hoped. A new adware strain's been reported. Mr. Pichai goes to Washington and Uncle Pennybags puts in an appearance. And the U.S. House Oversight and Government Reform Committee reports on the Equifax breach. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, December 11th, 2018. Regular listeners will recall on October 4th, Bloomberg reported that motherboards built by Supermicro had been compromised in a hardware attack on the company's supply chain. Small chips the size of a grain of rice were said to have been found in the motherboards, and these chips were said to have been installed to give Chinese intelligence services access to any devices that used them. Supermicro denied the report. Among Supermicro's customers were Apple and Amazon, and both of them also quickly issued strong and unambiguous denials that any such compromised hardware existed in their servers. Bloomberg did not retract its report, but some of the sources cited in the articles walked back the stronger claims attributed to them. Federal authorities, including the FBI, The Director of National Intelligence and the Department of Homeland Security also expressed public doubt about the Chinese spy chip claims. At this point, the story is widely regarded with skepticism, and there has been little subsequent follow-up. In a letter to its customers today, Supermicro says a third-party audit of its hardware conducted by Nardello tested the company's motherboards and found none of the Chinese spy chips a Bloomberg report said there were. That said, as TechCrunch noted, the October report worked its damage. Supermicro stock tanked shortly after its publication. Share prices have not recovered their September value. Huawei CFO Meng's bail hearing continues. A Vancouver judge did not, as expected, rule yesterday, and the process has continued into today. Ms. Meng has proposed electronic monitoring as an alternative to custody and has offered to arrange and pay for security. The proffered oversight by her husband and private security seems unlikely to convince the Supreme Court of British Columbia. It's worth noting that Ms. Mung is wanted by the U.S. for alleged sanctions violations, not, as one might think from such coverage, on espionage or IP theft charges. Security concerns about Huawei persist and are widely shared, but they are not directly what this case is about. There's a developing story in the oil and gas sector this week. The Italian oil service company Saipem reports that its Middle Eastern servers have sustained a cyber attack. Details remain sparse, but Saipem says it shut down some of its IT in order to remediate and recover from the incident. The affected centers, apart from a small branch office in Aberdeen, were located in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Elsewhere in the oil and gas sector, and affecting other targets as well, the Seedworm Espionage Group continues to be active and troublesome. Researchers at security firm Symantec find that the threat actor, which they also track as Muddy Water, has deployed a new backdoor, Powimuddy, new variants of its PowerStats backdoor, a GitHub repository for storing scripts, and an array of post-compromise exploit tools. Seedworm is most active against targets in the Middle East, but it's also been found in Europe and the Americas. There's been a shift from oil and gas toward telecommunication services and government agency IT services. Symantec assesses the group's goal as espionage, collection of actionable intelligence likely to be useful against the target at some point. Researchers at Cisco's Talos unit report that secure instant messaging services, may be less secure than generally believed. They've found that the widely used apps WhatsApp, Signal, and Telegraph are in principle vulnerable to side-channel attacks that could expose messages to hackers. Data may be secure in transit, but during processing or on a user's device, not so much. A great deal depends on the way the apps and their protocols are implemented, and many users overlook the complexity of setting them up in a secure manner. The upshot is that all three of the popular apps could be susceptible to desktop session hijacking. Controlling access to your network and data is of critical importance to every organization. But just how common are issues with third-party access? Barry Hensley is Chief Threat Intelligence Officer for SecureWorks, and he joins us to share what they're seeing.
0: You know, if you look at, uh, from a SecureWorks perspective, we did about 1,000 instant response engagements last year. And we found about 3% of those engagements, Now, those are you know, opportunities that an organization either was breached or had an opportunity to be breached. We found that 3% of those were tied to some third-party uh, supply chain challenge, meaning the avenue of approach into the environment was based upon that third-party relationship that we had in. Uh, a common theme that we, we saw was a, a trust relationship that was in some case broken Meaning, you know, if you had a relationship with some software distribution portal or some software development world or other software update mechanisms, how do you validate that, those downloads, as an example? Or the other thing is, if you gave a third-party you know, managed service provider, from an IT perspective, access to your environment, uh, how do you validate their credentials and their access in a way uh, that's a trust-but-verified model? We took a step back and we said, you know, what's the most common things we'd recommend that you'd, in this case, what we call have a holistic defense in depth approach based upon these various uh, type of risks from a supply chain perspective. Some of it does go back and I hate to say, get you back to the basics. And so we found in most of these engagement, people didn't have the right uh, logging in place that ultimately would allow them to draw a conclusion. Was it their own employer? Was it some third party how do you get, give those suppliers access to your environment? And so n- now, as an example, anybody that accesses the network, especially externally from the internet, should be doing a, the, what we call multi-factor authentication so that there's more than just a username and password that you gave them. And then obviously, you know, how do you manage user account uh, access or privileges? And so what access should those third-party suppliers have? And then, you know, once they, in this case, did get in the network, how do you ensure they can, you know, what we call elevate privileges of some user uh, based upon the access they maintain. And then last one, you know, the endpoint is the new perimeter. And so in the end, they're usually gonna gain access to the first server, the first uh, endpoint, their host that they can get, gain access to. And then they're gonna pivot into the network. And so. From a rapid detection perspective, how do you have the ability to detect that initial you know compromise? And so I guess the last one is how robust is your visibility at the endpoint?
1: That's Barry Hensley from SecureWorks. A quick report from security firm Netscope this afternoon tells us that they've found an adware family they're calling Capital Install that's moving from Microsoft Azure blob Storage, whose IP range is unfortunately widely whitelisted. The malware looks like a commonly used enterprise software installer. Netscope says the malware makes its criminal masters money through ads relating to altcoin mining and bogus search engines. Its effect on the victims is mostly productivity loss and consumption of computational resources. French authorities investigate possible Russian influence over ongoing yellow vest unrest. RT, the news service formerly known as Russia Today and one of the Russian government's principal information outlets, objects that covering the news isn't meddling. And that's a fair point. Simply saying that there are demonstrations and some rioting in France and discontent over President Macron's policies surely doesn't constitute interference or disinformation. But that's not what investigators are looking into. They are inquiring into whether a fictitious foreign persona are trolling in social media. The chum tossed out in this case would be mainly the hashtag Zizé Jaune, that is, yellow vest, and protesters have certainly made use of that in a grassroots way. The opportunistic conduct of information operations would seem to make it possible that such trolling has made its own contribution to the unrest. How large that contribution might be is unknown. Social upheaval of this kind is very commonly overdetermined in any case. Google CEO Sundar Pichai makes his appearance before the House Judiciary Committee today to discuss Google's data collection, use, and filtering practices. His prepared remarks emphasize Mountain View's American family romance, founded by two young dreamers, one a Michigander, the other a Marylander, coming together at Stanford to dream big. They welcome employees of all viewpoints. They've built jobs, made immigrants profoundly grateful for this land of opportunity, and so on. Congress is interested in hearing about data privacy—they think Google may have a problem with this—and bias—ideological, gender, or any other form bias may take. Pichai stressed Google's neutrality to Democratic satisfaction and Republican skepticism with respect to its filtering algorithms. He also came in for questioning over the company's privacy policies, given some point by yesterday's disclosure that Google Plus had exposed some 53 million users' data to app developers— through an unduly permissive API. The company has said it's found no evidence that the data was misused, but it's accelerated plans to retire Google+, now destined for an even quicker trip to the scrap heap. Pachai says the company supports federal privacy legislation. The hearings unfolded today with the usual street theater one sees in Capitol Hill hearing rooms. For example, a guy dressed up as Uncle Pennybags from the Monopoly game was there in the audience behind Pachai. Whirling his mustache and mugging for C-SPAN. Uncle Pennybags made his first appearance in the Congressional Peanut Gallery during last year's Equifax hearings. He's interested, he says, in showing by his presence that industry is incapable of self-regulation. It's not clear how this follows, but the monocle, top hat, and handlebar mustache are a nice look for him. Take a ride on the Redding, sir. If you pass go, collect $200. The House has released two reports on its investigation of the Equifax breach. The Oversight and Government Reform Committee's report found that the breach was the preventable result of the Credit Bureau's internal security missteps, thus confirming the conclusion most observers have also reached. A report by the committee's Democrat minority staff raked the majority over the coals for not doing more for data protection, but such disputes are the small change of partisan combat in Washington. There's no dissent from the basic findings. Do not pass go, as Uncle Pennybags might put it. And no, free parking doesn't entitle you to anything either. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, SixSense. Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations, To learn why enterprises choose SixthSense, Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Professor Awais Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at University of Bristol. Awais, uh, welcome back. Um, today we wanted to touch on uh, some of the things people have to consider when they are making decision-making, particularly when it comes to risk, and some of the challenges that come with using data there. What can you share with us?
2: We live in a data-intensive world Uh, at the moment. uh, We we also talk about big data and AI transforming everything. But if you look at the sort of projections of something like 30 billion devices or more by, by 2021 and other projections which talk about something like 278 exabytes of data, per month by the same period, then we are looking at potentially a large amount of information that we can actually collect from the underlying infrastructure. The challenge comes is that uh, how do you make sense of all this data? And there is always a tendency to think that we can actually log everything and mine effectively the living daylights out of it. Uh, But there there is a big challenge there as to how do we curate this information and actually be more selective about What information from the infrastructure or the applications and services that run in that infrastructure is really pertinent to this thing about its security state.
1: So when it comes to managing risk, what sort of approach are you advocating?
2: I think risk is ultimately a decision-making problem because we we can't remove risk, but it's how we inform our risk decision-making is very, very important. And if we are not careful in the way we, we curate the data and what data we actually bring from the underlying uh, system or infrastructure in in risk decision making then we uh well to uh, no pun intended uh, risk overloading the decision makers in the first instance with with the information and as a result it makes it really hard for them to make sense of sense of such information i think the key here is uh a good balance between um, automated, uh, semi-automated or, or or human decision-making. And at the moment, we actually do not necessarily know as to which bits of it can we automate and how automation can provide a value to the human decision-maker so that they can defer some of their decisions because the de- information that comes and the decisions that come from automation and AI techniques uh, would provide uh, very valuable insights and where do we defer to the human because they can look at the bigger picture the social economic business consequences of of some of the some of the decisions that they are making with regards to risk
1: yeah i mean it strikes me that in in this uh, attempt to separate the signal from the noise that uh, you sort of need a, a virtuous feedback loop where the if you have automation providing things to the humans and the humans need to be able to provide feedback to the automated systems to say well, this was valuable to me or or uh, you missed the mark here
2: uh, absolutely and and uh, humans are very good at spotting patterns that uh, computers sometimes can't uh, and i think the uh, key challenge really there is that we need to make sure how we get that feedback feedback loop pride. Over the years, you know, mistakes have been made where the knowledge of uh, so-called lay persons in the organization, not security specialists, when they are seeing some information coming through is often disregarded because they are not security specialists. However, they understand the process within which they are working very, very well, and they are often much better at spotting anomalies, uh, than, than perhaps uh, a security system would. I'm not saying always. And I think it's how we get that feedback loop right and getting the expert, the domain expert, to provide what would be anomalous, non-anomalous events in that sense actually create a uh, more holistic loop between the people and the machine in, in terms of uh, spotting events and hence informing risk decision-making. Professor
1: Owais Rashid, thanks for joining us.